This is Bonjour Chai, the Bargain Basement Anti-Semitism Edition. I'm Avi Fongold in Montreal, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltzbovi in Toronto. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, what did we talk about before we talked about anti-Semitism? It seems as if that is the only thing that people talk about these days. Um, it's on the headlines across every major Jewish publication and uh, in conversations, in shul, at the dinner table, uh, and online. Did we talk about other things? What did we talk about? Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Um, all of that and more on today's show. Phoebe, how's it going? It's going well because I am especially a frozen chosen, or I'm a less frozen chosen. I'm a defrosted chosen now because I have a new coat. You have a new I'm coat. I'm going to tell you about it. Okay. I have a new coat, and it's extremely beautiful. And would you believe what I paid for this coat? Would you believe what I paid for the coat? <laughs> I'm going for that. That's what I'm going for. It's not how I normally talk. Um $20 with tax, Whoa. $20 with Canadian dollars with tax. Um, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about this code. I want to hear about this. Um, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot to say about it. So I had been noticing these coats both in Instagram ads and on some of the better dressed moms at my older daughter's school. These coats being which ones? From, they're the horses atelier coats. They are, according to the website, Worn by Margaret Atwood, among others. It's a herringbone pattern, partly wool overcoat that does not close. And I've been thinking, okay, this is extremely impractical. I do not want a coat that doesn't close. But they're very attractive coats, right? But I also do not want to spend $600 plus tax on a coat that doesn't close. And then Vintage by the Pound, uh, which is near me in Toronto, it's... Um, and around Dundas West and Sararin has had had just like this coat that was very similar, but it had buttons, which I was looking for, and was more like a higher percentage wool, also, which I was looking for, and twenty dollars. So why not? Meaning, I'm very excited. About how this. how much is it by the pound? Meaning, how much do they charge you a pound? So, which means how many pounds is this coat? <laughs> so it's per <laughs> item for things like that, but I think it's something like. Seventeen dollars per pound plus ah, tax. Okay, fine. Yeah, it's funny. I I, I want to get into talking about uh, f- uh, thrift stores for in a second, but I have to say that I also have a new coat this year um, for the winter, and it's about the exact opposite uh, coat as it possibly can be based on your description. Um, I the only thing that I have in common with it is that it's. Uh, I also got a great deal on it, uh, but it's a coat that I've been eyeing for like five years easily, if not more. Uh, it's from this brand Arcteryx, which everybody wears uh, in Canada. It's a big Canadian brand. They do all this great technical clothing and uh, for skiing and for you know uh, mountain climbing and all this stuff. Um, and they have a line called Valence, which is their their city line. So they take all of the tech that's in their coats and they uh, streamline it and take off all the logos and make it look you know, for perfectly suited for an urban environment uh and their top of the line coat is the monitor coat and it first of all it only works if you zip it right it has a zipper and it's like it's no protection unless you but it's like the best Gore-Tex and the best down um and the retail price on this was sixteen hundred dollars and I was like there's no way that I can ever see myself paying sixteen hundred dollars for a coat and this summer when I was driving through Toronto on my way to my road trip um to to the U.S. uh I passed by the Arcteryx uh, outlet outside of Toronto and I found it for less than half off 
uh, meaning, sorry, more than half off. Uh, so it was a fortune, but it was a Metsia, as we say, because uh, that's what we, we like to find. But I can't imagine a more opposite coat than what you just described. That's great. But thrift shops, <laughs> it sounds like oh, you're, yeah, you're good with yeah. that. I mean, I should say as a, as a little disclaimer that my winter winter coat is one of the Aritzia waterproof full length deals. So I, I go for the technology when you actually need th- this is a more sort of like because in Canada, apparently, you need different levels of winter. Coat, yes, um, yes. Which is something I had. Is this like, the super puff? To call. Is this the super puff? I think so. It's the water. I, I splurged on but the everybody waterproof goes one, for it. Yeah. Which, which and I have no regrets there. Um, yeah, everything that I used to think of as my winter coat in New York or anywhere else I lived pretty much um, is now like a fall coat. Um, but yeah, so I was thinking a lot about just the relationship between Jews and thrift store shopping, discount shopping, sample sales, vintage consignments. I could go on and on and on. Um, And this is just something I've thought about, obviously, for years, like going to Filene's Basement and Century 21 in New York. Did you ever Um, go to the original Filene's Basement in the basement in Boston? No. Oh, I used to go there all the time. Oh, was it good? Oh, it was the best because they had um, every price ticket had a date on it. And there was these signs around the store and you knew like if it had crossed a certain date, it was 25% off. If you crossed a certain date, it was 50. And if you crossed a certain date, it was 75% off. So you're always like looking to like hide like something behind something else, (laughs) hoping that in two days it'll be there and then it's not um, because it's like, oh, I can get it at 50, but if I wait two days and I come back, it'll be even cheaper. And it sometimes it would work, but it would most often not. Um, but the original family's basement was uh, quite a basement uh, indeed. That sounds amazing. I mean, I guess what I remember in terms of shopping. So this is interesting about the levels, like, I mean, levels in actual physical space, not sort of mm-hmm. philosophical levels. Um what I remember really liking the most in New York uh, was on West 36th Street. It may still be there around 7th Avenue was the sample sale space where you could regularly get stuff from. Um, I'm trying to remember even what the brands were at this point, but it would be like well-known brands. But also it was often things like sort of Taka or maybe it would be like Agnes B, different things like that. Um, and But the space would always be running. It just would always have different designers in it but then on the lower level that makes me think of my favorite episode of the show broad city where alana and her mother uh are on the hunt for uh knockoff handbags around canal street in new york they go under a literal manhole and it has the line in it the best stuff's always down a manhole now we're cooking with gas all the good is always down a manhole which has a double meaning in this episode that I will not spell out, but it's an amazing, amazing episode. And there's a line in it where I think it's her mother says, get the pashmina, get the pashmina. Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't put them on the filthy uh, floor. Where's the pashmina? Get the pashmina out. I put this pashmina around my neck. It doesn't matter. It, it makes sense in the context of the episode, but it has to do with their somewhat illicit and extremely funny quest for these bags and it's just that i think of that a lot because it's just like it's such jewish humor but it's also such sort of jewish women humor and you don't really get a lot of that except that there and the nanny certainly because yes, the nanny <laughs> would you know she would be down that manhole with the best of them do you do you remember there was like a summer or two where all of midtown manhattan was overrun with people selling pashminas on every corner like ne- next to the nuts 
such memories like Proustian. I'm getting yes, the smell, the smell of, of the, the nuts, nuts yes. and the visual of the pashminas. We were just in Manhattan recently for a day and uh, there's no more nut sales. It's all cannabis trucks like <laughs> oh, no. throughout Manhattan. It's unbelievable, but that's a different discussion, different thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is... Uh, I have a deep relationship also with uh, with consignment stores. Um, I have, uh, as my wife says, uh, I have millionaire tastes on an Old Navy budget. <laughs> and and she's always quick. Like, I'm in Shul and I'm wearing something new. And, and people are like, oh, my God, that's a great suit. Like, where'd you get that? And she's like, oh, my God, don't. He got a deal. He found a sample sale. He found it on consignment. Like, you know, and the first time somebody once asked me about this tie that I got and I said, oh, I got a, con- a great deal on a consignment uh, tie. And he goes, really? That's like gross. Somebody else wore it. I'm like, people that buy like Hermes don't tend to vomit on their ties. <laughs> so I was like, that was my like way of like, yeah, I think it's OK. But, uh, you know, there's so much to unpack in terms of like the ways in which Jews need to like have this need to I don't know, get a deal and the well, connection the of Jews like, and like we, shmatas. Is it something that I feel like it's something that I would think, am I embodying a stereotype in some negative way if I'm excited about a deal and I'm vocal about it. But you know what? I was excited about the deal on this coat and I was vocal about it. And here's where it got interesting. I posted about it on Twitter and uh, somebody replied, like, congratulations, you're sort of becoming Canadian now because you're so excited about this deal you got. And I was just baffled because I would have thought wanting a good deal was, you know, I'm allowed to say this being Jewish, more Jewish, more New York Jewish, especially than Canadian. And this led to a whole Twitter debate about um, who does and doesn't want a good deal on stuff or who is and is not um, vocal about this because I will say when I first moved to Toronto, I was always sort of trying to find, are there sample sales here? Does that even exist? And I'm still slowly, um, a few years in, making my way to discovering where there even are consignment stores and vintage stores and all of these different things. Um, but sample sales specifically, I think, require a garment industry yeah, on a level. Which Montreal has, and we sometimes yeah. get sample sales. But, uh, Do those you are know? There. Sometimes. I'll let you know next time there's a good one in town, and uh, maybe you'll make I'll a pilgrimage. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I feel like there's just so much here, and I want to like unpack it just to, to get to your piece there. Maybe I want to save this for like a whole show. Um, so let's let's park this, because it's such, such rich uh, discussion. Um, but I think the difference between Canadians and Americans is that as this is purely me riffing and off the top of my head my guess is that because we are less consumerist as a culture we are easier uh to admit at getting a deal and therefore not participating in this hyper consumerist culture like oh yeah i got it because somebody else bought it and they got rid of it and so i can you know buy their reject or not their reject but something that they may moved on from or whatever it is um and in america there's a little more like outside of major urban centers like new york there's there's more of this like quietness about like oh no i don't know maybe we uh you you got a deal what you couldn't afford to pay retail like what's the big deal so so i think that that's part of the distinction but but there's so much to deal with here and i think let's find a hook to talk about the uh jews and the shmata industry in montreal new york toronto and 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 where they are now and and all of that stuff so yes uh, and i would definitely like to do that and in honor of my great grandfather who was a pushcart peddler in montreal way wow. back when there you go so you know i i definitely want to discuss that in the future yeah all right well um on a related note about whether or not you should admit to getting a deal as a jew um or be proud of it um let's get to our main topic 
right after we hear from our sponsor. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. So today's topic came about because of an offhand comment I made a little while ago in a meeting. Someone said something about anti-Semitism as a topic, and I said jokingly that that's the only topic, which led to the follow-up musing aloud of like, what did we even talk about before we talked about anti-Semitism? Because I'm old enough to remember a time when that wasn't the only thing on our minds as a community. So today on the show, we're examining community discourse. What did we talk about before we talked about anti-Semitism? Why is it the major source of public conversation? And are there alternatives? Um, so I, I want to start by, you know, unpacking whether or not this is even a thing and whether this is true in my, or is this just me imagining it? Um, and then we can talk about, you know, a little bit uh, about uh, what this does to the community when all this discourse happens like this. So Phoebe, I, I wasn't even sure of this topic. It felt right to me. And I couldn't tell if it was, like I said, just me or not, you must have thoughts on this. Yes. So I have been noticing on social media and in Jewish, but also I think it's important to note mainstream publications too, a lot of discussion of and headlines about rising anti-Semitism. The rise, anti-Semitism is on the rise. This is always stated as fact year after year. I cannot remember a time since Trump was elected that this was not sort of a given and presented all of the times, right? So I saw kind of two turning points. One would be really Trump's election. And I was uh, at doing work at the forward at the time in New York. So we, you know, I was very involved in the Jewish press at that point. But also just you see this in other publications as well. Like Anti-Semitism gets discussed sort of alongside other forms of bigotry. Like it's another one of the bigotries that people are really talking about a lot. Um so that would be one turning point. The other would really be the summer of 2020 and the racial reckoning and the George Floyd protests. And with that, a general sort of turn in society towards really talking about identity. Then, of course, would be the Kanye turning point of suddenly there are, you know, major figures making anti-Semitic remarks and then having dinner with Donald Trump. Why not? You know, so I think there's um, definitely I, I noticed a rise in the rise in anti-Semitism. OK, if that makes sense. A rise in yeah. that kind of phrase. I have not uh, done a dissertation on it. But it's something I've noticed. So I, I have this line that I like to, anytime somebody asks a good question in a, in a class that I'm teaching or a presentation that I'm giving, I always end up saying, that's such a great question. It would make an excellent master's level thesis, um, but not necessarily a dissertation. Um, and this is what you would need to do to answer that question. And in this question, I was like, well, the easy thing to do would write a master's thesis about this and then ask the question of what was every headline um, in 
every major Jewish media publication for the past 40, 50 years, um, and then code them for content. Is it talking about Israel? Is it talking about the community? Is it talking about anti-Semitism? Is it talking about whatever it might be? And then Please actually this, see, somebody, somebody do, do this. this. I couldn't yeah. do that, but I did something representative. And uh, I sent you this document where I went to the archives of the CJN, and I was like, it's 2023. Let's look at um, all the headlines from 30 years ago and from 20 years ago. So 1993 and 2003, I put every headline in a document and I sent them to you. Um, did anything stand out, first of all, in terms yes. of like what's going on here? A lot did stand out. Um, Tell so me. My, well, I'm going to start with my hypothesis and then I'm going to talk about where I was way off. Although it could be that I'm coming from an American perspective and had things a little differently from that. My hunch had been that what everybody was talking about in the Jewish community prior to anti-Semitism as a topic was continuity. And I was guessing that there would be a lot about intermarriage and that would be kind of the dominant theme prior to discussions of anti-Semitism. But what I saw here was a lot about Israel and not about Israel in terms of Zionism or anti-Zionism in Canada, but it seemed to be literally like what is happening on the ground in the Middle East and Mm -hmm. aimed at an audience following this aimed at an audience sort of smart enough to follow this, plugged in enough to follow this, um, sophisticated, I don't know how to put it, but sort of both engaged in Israel and in terms of what that means politically, but also not, Israel was not identity politics in some abstract way for the readership going by these headlines. It was like people are really following day to day what's happening in the news. Mm -hmm. Which I found it fascinating. So 1993 was the a year of uh, Rabin and Arafat, uh, Rabin and Arafat's accords in, in the U.S. Um, so that really dominated the headlines in a big way. But like you said, it was not about, you know, either Israel rah, 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 or Israel, um, you know, what's, the, what's there to talk about or right, left, two states, right. It was about this existential threat that Israelis were feeling from what they deemed what they call terrorism. And on the other side, this notion that there's possible peace and what's going to happen and how's it going to work. And there's this other side that in 1993, nobody was even really talking to, let alone thinking about. It was just the other. Um, and that now we have this rapprochement is this discussion around Palestinians, right? And that's very different. But one can easily sense that in 1993, the, the the tone of dialogue around Israel was very, very different. Um, but like Absolutely. you said, it was very, very rich. And that's really so much of the headlines in 93. Um, anything mm-hmm. else? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess also just sort of to build on what you're saying, it really seemed like there's no case being made in those headlines that Canadian Jews should care about Israel. It is assumed. It is assumed that this is a topic of interest. There's no sort of, do people care about Israel these days? Well, you know, it it just seemed like there's an assumption that the readership, and I would assume a correct assumption that the readership was engaged on these topics. Yeah, it's interesting. It's as if the the people that talk about um, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Um, had they started this dialogue in 1993, this discussion in 93, um, that would have been so much easier to get the message across back then because um, support for Israel and strong Zionism was so associated with um, just identity as a Jew um, back then. And now that's where it's murkier and that's where it's different. But that was, I think that's, you're 100% right on that one. Yeah. Um, my, my think, uh, first of all, I don't know if you noticed, but there was some discussions around continuity, maybe a little bit later, especially in the, in the, in the second Mm -hmm. set in 2003. Um, but, 
what I think the distinction is, and again, this is pure speculation, but the difference between um, federations and Jewish organizations, who I think were very much talking about continuity um, at the time, versus the media, which really had a responsibility to have a broader segment of the population, uh, or a broader segment uh, of the population to represent, and more topics to discuss, and that this is what people were talking about, versus what the community organizations were worried about, and that that's mm-hmm. a distinction to, to be made. Well, I wondered about that also just in terms of the evolving concept of headline news, because I think that used to just be in media in general, that if something's the top story, it has to be the big news story involving war or something like that, or, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think that's changed a bit. So I think that something like intermarriage would have been kind of a lifestyle topic would not have been necessarily... um, headline news, even in eras when people were extremely fixated on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, when you get a paper that's coming out once a week, you get one headline or two headlines a week on on a front page, whereas now we're getting two, three headlines a day sometimes. Um, Sure. And that the difference also is that the major organizations have their own um, newsletters and, and publications that they're putting out their own information on. So that's different from what the media is necessarily putting out. And the media isn't necessarily reporting purely on what large organizations are putting up press releases on. Um, and mm-hmm. that that's a difference um, in the way the media operates these days. Mm-hmm. But I think... But it did seem ahead. to show... Yeah. Oh, sorry, I was going to say, it did seem to show uh, that, indeed, the rise in anti-Semitism was not a headline week after week. Um, mm-hmm. There were an, there were there were episodes of anti-Semitism, right? I, I remember when I, I started doing this and I went to the first paper of 1993 in January, and the first thing is shul desecrations. And I was like, oh, no, I'm going to be so wrong on this whole thing. And then I'm like, okay, maybe the next week. And the next week, anti-Semitism at University of Toronto. Oh, and then the third week, <laughs> protesters clash at hearing, which was about the Heritage Front that had a phone line and they wanted to protest it. And then there was a whole big fight. I'm like, another thing about anti-Semitism. It's like the first three. But then all of a sudden, it's thousands of Germans protest against anti-Semitism. And then, and then it moves into like Israel and so many other pieces. And so I was like, okay, fine. The fact is, there was so much... Um, it, it was a more varied media diet, what I got, the sense that I got of, uh, mm-hmm. of that. Um, and the, uh, I was fascinated by the, uh, the special topics that they had, that they would do these like two part topics and which you can tell that this was like a big deal. So it was like Israelis in Toronto had a two part series, um, AIDS had a, two, is, is it a Jewish problem? Right in 1993, you can you can think about that. And minority relations, um, th- this was you know something also that was like a big you know focus on this. Um, so I thought that that was interesting. And in 2003, there was so much talk about SARS, um, and because yes. SARS hit Toronto in a big way, and so it really affected the Jewish community. Um, Elon Ramon was a big one, but I found that like there was so much pride. There was a lot of discussions around like the stuff that the Jews were doing, rather than like the stuff that the Jews were beleaguered about. Um, so, so I mm-hmm. think that my like our theory is true that I think that people are talking much more about anti-Semitism than they used to. Yes, I think absolutely. I don't think it requires demonstrating, which wouldn't be possible, uh, that no Jews cared about anti-Semitism prior to. 2016 because that wouldn't make any sense Mm -hmm. that um i mean there's the jewish apology like that that type of literature you know like Mm -hmm. not apology like i'm sorry but you know defenses of jews by jews of the jews by jews that's just a sort of 
a literature. I wrote about this um, when I reviewed Barry Weiss's book about anti-Semitism, but that this has a long history, mm-hmm. like really, really long. So this is not, you wouldn't be looking to find an absence of discussion of this. It's just this as the sort of sole focus seems new. Yeah. And um, yeah, I want to kind of look into why, because I think it's, it's fascinating and potentially concerning. So I, 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 the, when you mentioned the continuity thing, I think something really clicked in my mind with that, um, in that it's really all related. And I, I think it's more nuanced than I used to think about it. And I used to say this whole anti-Semitism thing, it's purely because um, it's at the front of our minds because the major organizations can easily fundraise on anti-Semitism, right? It's about fear and fear is a very big motivator in getting people to donate. And we care about our security, our most basic need to be secure. Um, And even though uh, I don't feel unsecure, I don't know if you feel unsecure as a Jew online or, you know, in your day to day, you know, walking around. But the the major organizations like federations are quick to to really talk about it a lot. um, Because if you feel fearful as somebody who's Jewish in in Canada, you're going to be willing to donate and say, yes, we want to be secure. We we, we have to, we have to fight this. We have to fight this. We have to fight this. Um, And that's very much related to the continuity discussion. And that if people were talking about continuity, it's very much still about fear. We're going to go away, right? If we only marry, you know, uh, if we, if we, if too many Jews start marrying non-Jews, then we're going to go away, then there's not going to be any Jews anymore. And all the thing that we felt for 3000 years, it's all going to fall apart, right? So again, it's, it's out of fear. And I think that Jews really um, have a hard time, or as Jews as a community, um, have a hard time working beyond that. And that for a while, right, in the 20th century, um, because we were so well integrated, fear wasn't part of the discourse. So, you know, interfaith and continuity and, and all this stuff becomes part of that discourse by saying, yes, we have to be fearful. Um, and then anti-Semitism is able to replace that, even though uh, interfaith marriages are way more um, are happening way more in proportion than they used to. Um, but I think that people just assume that it's a fait accompli, that everybody's just that, it, you know, it, it's not going to go away anytime soon. So we've kind of lost the war on continuity to everybody but the, you know, Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox. So uh, the other fight that we can be make people fearful and really, you know, rally the troops is around anti-Semitism. And lo- conveniently enough, there happens to be a rise in anti-Semitism. So much to discuss here. My goodness. Um, <laughs> That's my so theory. The continuity. No, I, I think that, that that holds up. Um, the continuity thing always struck me, and I'm talking now about like early 2000s, um, sort, or sort of 2010 or so. I remember just thinking that there was a lot of discussion from Jewish organizations about like, your parents don't want you to marry out. And it seemed like it wasn't about actual Jews' parents so much as what these organizations were kind of saying. I think mm-hmm. that the reality is that if you're Jewish and extremely set on your children marrying other Jews, you're either very observant or you're in Israel or you're, and if you're living in society where there are not, you know, where Jews are a very small minority, it's not that Jews who marry out are, you know, looking for non-Jewish partners. It's that that's mainly who they're going to be meeting, right? So it seemed like, the organization Jewish organizations were maybe just a, like maybe 20 years behind a lot of the people they were kind of claiming to speak for on this if that makes sense with the continuity part 
Yeah. It may be different also in the States and Canada. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, I, 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 there was definitely a time shift between the States and Canada because we are a little further behind in terms of traditionalism and modernism and stuff like that. Um, and I think that there's something there in that the the discussions are often wish fulfillment rather than than realities, right? You didn't have to have this discussion about your parents don't want that to, don't want you to do that t- twenty years before that because parents would actually say that and they would live it and they would um, you know live these values of yes, of course we want you to marry somebody Jewish and we want you to marry somebody Jewish because this is the value system that we are we have raised you in and that we want those values to continue. And that became a lot more nebulous as time went on. And uh, and so, you know, instead of having that just be a natural extension of it, then it becomes, you know, something out of fear, then becomes something out of like, well, it's important, it's important. All of a sudden the numbers are shifting and we have to worry about this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, the anti-Semitism thing is interesting because it really does bring in the children of intermarriage, potentially, because anybody who's however tangentially, however slightly affiliated with Jewishness, however slightly associated with Jewishness, anybody who's defined externally as Jewish, so anybody with a Jewish-sounding last name, whatever, can be the victim of anti-Semitism, right? So that's... um, that kind of it, yeah mm-hmm. like isn't that kind of what you were saying that like it it addresses it um it raises the, it's a different way of raising the numbers yeah um i i i you know it's fascinating to me that this everything's fascinating to me um that we were able to like you know have this it's, it's convenient but something else would have come in its place um the israel thing is just as interesting because um when we were talking about the, you know, the Israel headlines and everybody knew about it and everybody was, you know, was there, right? If Israel is under existential threat, you feel it more in Canada if you have this fear that you need to to worry that this is our safe space and, uh, well, terrorists might take it over or it might have a, you know, maybe there's peace going to be finally and that's going to be better, right? But let's worry about it because Arafat is not such a great guy and all of this stuff. So, so there's that tint of fear, right, that is mixed in with this general knowledge, this deep knowledge of Israel. Um, And I find that the people that are deeply, you know, into knowing about Israel, right, a lot of it is because they feel this existential, like, threat, and they want to know that there's always Israel there for them. And so we have to be safe, and we have to make sure that everything's going to be fine, and we have to, you know, Israel's strong, so I need to know as much as I can about it. And that's also tinted with fear. And I just, like... uh, I think it's so much better of a of a way to just you know talk about the the wonderful stuff that Jews do and what we do as Jews and this is good and like that's what I want to be working towards. But uh, you know let, let let's hold on to that for the second uh, you know piece of this. But um, yeah, I don't know. Do you do you do you get this sense of like fear across like Jewish media across Jewish dialogue? Um, yes, and I think that what's happened though when the conversation has shifted to anti-Semitism specifically is it's kind of universalized uh, Jewish concerns and placed them in a broader framework where it's part, it goes, you know, alongside Black Lives Matter, alongside um, the fight against um, anti-Asian violence, all of these different causes become, become kind of linked and it, and fighting anti-Semitism just becomes kind of part of this broader fight against hate, but also as such sort of a way of bringing Jews together with non-Jews. And that's very different from an Israel focus, which is very specifically about 
Jewish concerns. But I would say that, so what I would say is that, yes, I see this fear, but I don't think it's particularly, it, it, it's a fear that's linking Jews with other groups who are also afraid. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's only partially true though, because to a large extent, and this is the issue that a lot of Jews have with left-leaning politics is that this with this rise of intersectionality and in the intersectional discussion uh the intersection the the palestinians became the oppressed class and that all oppressed have to support all oppressed and that it became about the palestinians and not about the jews right it uh, the way i've said it in the past is that uh, all of a sudden we were no longer the david and we were the we become the goliath um in the discussion and that's really strange for jews to be in that part of it and that part of the the discussion. And then that's where um, this pushback against intersectional politics lies is intersectional politics is saying, well, we're going to take the oppressed class of every place and make those all intersectional. And Jews are like, no, 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 we're the oppressed ones here. We're the oppressed ones here. And they're like, essentially, no, 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 you're not. You are oppressing other people. That makes you the oppressor, even if in Canada or in the US or everywhere else, you might be oppressed, right? That doesn't matter. And then that's where things, you know, are coming together. And I don't think that um, a lot of uh, nuance is, you know, is being... There's not a lot of nuance in that uh, discussion, both on the left or on the right. There's no recognition on the left that, yes, we may be, uh, have, there may be some real issues with the way that Israelis treat Palestinians, um, but that doesn't mean that we cannot be both oppressed and oppressor sometimes. Um, and on the right, there's not a, there's not a, a wake up, right? There's not an, a, a possible acceptance that we are, we might actually be the oppressor in this situation. And we have to accept that. Yeah, I agree with all of that. It's making me think of two things that are unfortunately not related. And I don't know that I have a suave way of pretending they are. (laughs) But um, one is that this really makes the sort of anti-Asian discrimination topic a useful one for comparison, because it's, it's very much the same idea where there's a group of people who are definitely discriminated against and who also are not always, you know, sort of in the bottom rung in whichever sort of privilege hierarchy as defined on the mm-hmm. left, right? So you, you do see a lot of comparisons there, especially in terms of, you see this a lot in the States in terms of schools and um, quotas and so forth. And I don't think there's gonna be time to unpack all of that now. But I just do think that that's an interesting kind of related area that's changed is I think there used to be a real culture among Jews of kind of, I don't want to say laughing off anti-Semitism, but kind of like trying to preempt. And this is something I wrote about um, in one of my CJN pieces on this, is that there used to be sort of like not making a big deal of anti-Semitism, sort of ostentatiously not being thin-skinned, if that makes sense. And I'm thinking especially of like the Seinfeld where Uncle Leo thinks that he sees sees anti-Semitism everywhere. And Jerry, who's kind of the stand-in for like the, I don't want to say cool, because that would be overstating the case, but for sort of the normal take on the matter, what a sort of normal, sort of nondescript aged (laughs) Jewish person at the time would have thought is sort of like, nah, anti-Semitism's not everywhere. Where I think there was kind of this stereotype of Jews as hypersensitive about Mm anti-Semitism that... I think there was this culture of kind of overshooting the mark to not be that. 
And I feel like that is something, this is very convoluted, I realize, but I think that that's changed with the rise, especially since 2020, of identity politics, where now it's almost like it's cool to care about your identity group being oppressed. And it's cool to call people out for a microaggression. Whereas I think even pretty recently, Jews would not, it's not that Jews wouldn't do that, but the ones who did would get made fun of by the rest. Yeah, so it's the... the, By other Jews. The way I would say it is that the the Jewish community was so well integrated into society that for, to 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 point out that somebody was anti-Semitic was to sort of just say like yeah of course and and he's prejudiced against you know like uh, purple cows and he's prejudiced against uh, you know uh, I don't know come up with something you know totally random but that is so fringe right why would you hate this right we're part of the the mainstream and now all of a sudden with yeah. the rise of anti-Semitism and I, uh, Jesse Brown actually articulated this on Hannerland uh, recently in a very great way he says we don't get to be part of the oppressed and also wanting to be part of the mainstream you don't get to take advantage of your privilege to, to use a very phoebe uh centric term um you don't take get to take advantage of that and then also claim no 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 we are so oppressed and there's a problem here um and the, yeah. th- that's well, that's a weird do, maybe line you do. maybe you do get to do both <laughs> in different contexts but yeah, yeah i mean I, I would say the only thing i would add is that i think Part of the reluctance among Jews to talk about anti-Semitism these days really was the sense that anti-Semitism was Hitler, right? Anti-Semitism was genocide, and that anything you see now is just so slight in comparison to that, that it it, it almost seems like you're being hyperbolic. To even say anti-Semitism yeah. in reference to anything now is inherently hyperbolic. And I don't think it is. I think it should be possible to talk about more minor instances of anti-Semitism. But, and I guess maybe this is kind of bringing us more to the... Uh, second segment on this is really that um, you don't you don't want to only be talking about anti-semitism right like you want to be able to talk about an anti-semitic microaggression but you also want to be able to maybe maybe talk about something else yeah I hope something else also and 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 that lens I think that that's um, you know, something and, uh, you know, as we're moving towards towards thinking about this, like what happens when we talk about anti-Semitism so much is um, that, you know, we then have these lenses on that are looking for it everywhere. I, I there was an article that came out uh, when Zelensky uh, went and spoke uh, in the uh, at Congress, in the U.S. Congress, when he made his first foreign trip since the beginning of the conflict. Um, and the headline of it was... Why would Zelensky not mention Hanukkah in his address to Congress? Right, it was in the Jewish Journal, JewishJournal dot com, and this woman that is, is like an amazing find. That's right, sorry, but like yeah. it was like um, I'll give you the subhead because that that really unpacks it all. Eva Robbins writes this, and the subhead is Zelensky is living what the Hanukkah story is all about. Fighting for freedom and dignity. Is it possible he was warned, given all the anti-Semitism that has emerged, not to identify too Jewishly? And and I'm thinking to myself, like, no, he has a great speechwriter who realizes that Hanukkah doesn't need to be shoehorned into everything just because Hanukkah is around now, right? And was and he the, not wearing the right merch? Was he not wearing, like, the socks with the dreidels on it? Oh, that's true. Maybe he Because has... I took that as a as a very strong anti-Semitic message from the Jewish... Oh, that he wasn't wearing the right merch. Yeah, that he wasn't wearing dreidel socks. You need to see a little slip of a dreidel sock or you know that the person who you're talking to is probably a huge anti-Semite. That's how you know. How else would you know? So this to me is exactly the Uncle Leo phenomenon of like looking for Mm anti-Semitism everywhere when we talk about it all the time. And 
you know, that that's a huge downside. That but Uncle Leo is now like hip and young. And that's what's confusing because un- there are Uncle Leos on the left and the right. There are Uncle Leos of the sort of Uncle Leo generation. It's a look. And then, but it's also, it's also, dip- it, there are the Uncle Leos calling out perceived anti-Semitism among conservatives who are often the same people who are very involved in progressive causes, intersectionality, all of this. These are young and hip people, Right. Well, maybe not always that hip, but the point is, this is not stodgy anymore. It, there is sure, also a but, stodgy but it's still version a problem. of it. It's still a problem. Oh, it's it's, it's more of a problem in a way because because everybody's calling it yeah. out. And when I like, it's like if when you tell me that some that anti-Semitism happened, I want it to be real anti-Semitism. I don't want this like perceived, maybe sort of, but it's not quite. They got the uh, they got the Hanukkah merch wrong, or they had the like. You know, they didn't have enough merch or whatever it was. Like, that's not anti Like, as you wrote in your column, right? That's not, I don't want that as part of my feed on wondering what anti-Semitism is. I want what if the real... crossword puzzle looks like a swastika if you look at it? Well, if from it a looks like angle. a swastika and it fills in like a swastika. Now, do you then... think that it makes sense logically that the New York Times is trying to subliminally send Nazi imagery to its crossword pu- puzzle? Uh, you don't get to say the Jews control the media and also <laughs> that the New York Times, right, is putting an anti-Semitic, uh, you know, sw- like symbols into their games. But anyways. But otherwise reasonable people I follow on social media were posting about this earnestly, like, oh, can you believe the swastikas in the New York Times? And yeah, um, it's like, no, no, I actually can't believe what you're saying. So yeah, yeah. so I think that this is the, f- the major um, negative part that like comes up when we make anti-Semitism the center of the debate is that when you live in fear, you live in fear and you're always like going to have this fear wherever you go, wherever you're walking around, whatever you're doing, that fear will always follow you. And that this is just stoked by, um, you know, a media, a major Jewish organizations, right? Uh, cabal i don't think they're a cabal but like Mm -hmm. whatever Uh, they're a cabalah um of like you know you know let's make sure that anti-semitism is like on the forefront because then people will like need to have this like you know jewish you know let's fight anti-semitism let's fight anti-semitism oh yeah so i think i have maybe i'm thinking about this that i might have a slightly different take on this so i don't know if it's as much about fear as it is just this kind of flattening of experience flattening of sort of critical lens, as it were, that extends beyond Jews and is just the culture now of looking at everything in terms of finding the relevant bigotry and calling it out, whether or not it's sort of called for. And I think there's a plus to living in a society where people can, you know, take microaggressions and insults seriously and not be mocked for calling them out. Fine. I I think there are advantages to that, but also there's a disadvantage to people who can literally only think of flagging bigotries, flagging bigots, canceling the bigots, perhaps, mm-hmm. or the perceived bigots. And I think, I'm not sure, apart, like, if you take a step back, is this actually, and this is something I've been looking at, sort of, in my writing for years, is is this actually helping anything? Does it help fight bigotry in any meaningful sense? Does it reduce the amount of bigotry to have this kind of thing where you're always primed for calling something out? Like, does that actually change things? And that's where um, I'm not... I'm not sure. So I think that squares with uh, the other point that I have or the, that I think about when I think about the negative pieces of this. And it's uh, it's exactly what you're saying, plus one step further, which is what happens, and I can ask you this genuinely and not just rhetorically, what happens when 
um, your entire identity revolves around fighting against hatred of your identity. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Where um, for many people, their Jewish faith has become, I'm Jewish and I'm proud and I fight anti-Semitism. Yes. Yeah. And all you get then is this kind of, you've seen this with different groups, this kind of like black joy, Jewish joy and so forth. But it isn't actually about like the vibrant things that are happening. It's more just like, it's still part of the same thing, if that makes sense. Like, I think it really, it can't be that to be Jewish is like, it's positive because we are going to show those anti-Semites. You know what I mean? Like that's still doing the same thing. It has to just be positive and it should be, we're not paying attention to these anti-Semites, if that makes sense. Yeah. So example number one for me um, is Jubilong. Do you know Jubilong? Have you heard of them? They're the pink billboard I don't know. people. Do I belong? No, I, I don't know this. <laughs> um, they're the the pink uh, billboards that have been around about fighting anti-Semitism. Um, it, it's actually so. So, as a New Yorker, you 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 might know about this. So, it got started. But a New Yorker uh, well, who uh, yeah, wasn't yeah. driving. <laughs> no, no, no. But you were in Manhattan, okay. so you would see all of these billboards for Manhattan Mini Storage, right? Yes, yes, uh, yes. What's so special about Manhattan Mini Storage uh, uh, billboards? Mm-hmm. What, what do you know like what's so special yes, about them Let's, yes, so t- explain they, to us to, to the non-new yorkers what's well they're they're like oh um they're supposed to be kind of clever right yeah, so Isn't find that, some of them yeah. online and uh why don't you want to tell us some of that some of the billboards okay so here's one uh in or out of the closet everyone can use more space it's like a play on you know being metaphorically out of the closet um or Another one, actually, somehow, for some reason, they all seem to be the same theme. New York City has fewer closets, but our kids aren't afraid to come out of them. That seems probably untrue about certain pockets of New York. But anyway, um, or then there's, for some reason, they're all gay themed, although they are not, the ads themselves are not. It's all different groups. Um, But yeah, if you don't like gay marriage, don't get gay married, don't get gay married. Storage starting at $29. Yeah. Meaning that it had nothing okay. to do with the uh, the billboard, but the billboard is eye catching, and um, it's uh, you know it's going to get you to look, and then all of a sudden you see Manhattan Mini Storage, and that's it, right? Mm-hmm. So these um, this is a long, uh, convoluted way to get into, and all of this is the product of uh, this woman Archie Goddisman who was the brainchild behind all of these signs. And then she started this organization called Jubilong. And Jubilong uh, was about Jewish pride and coming up with these great signs, right? Like, uh, so you eat bacon. God has other things to worry about, right? Jubilong. Um, what were, what were some of the other ones? Um, and, you know, even if his mother still calls you her, even if the closest you get to synagogue is walking by one on the way to Soul Cycle, right? So those were the types of billboards that they had, right? Um, and then all of a sudden, oh, I'm sorry, I'm cringing. Like, it's, it's the the cringe. It's unfortunate that there's no audio for cringe because yeah, you just have to say cringe. Um, cringe. And, and then emoji. all that it's switched to, right? All of the billboards that and and this this approach and this in your faceness switch to anti-Semitism, right? We're just 75 years since the gas chamber, so no, a billboard calling out Jew hate isn't an overreaction. Does your church need armed guards? Because our synagogue does, right? 3,500 years of anti-Semitism doesn't make it right. Uh, You know, can a billboard end anti-Semitism? No, but you're not a billboard. So 
all of her creativity on this like cringy, mildly funny, but bringing awareness to Judaism um, approach to billboards and to ideas got shifted entirely towards fighting anti-Semitism. Oh, that's and I, interesting. And I feel like for so many people, fighting anti-Semitism has become the end product of Judaism now. Well, is it is it the end product of Judaism or is it just like its own form of assimilation? Or I don't even want to say assimilation, but a sort so, of... I'm not going to get Maybe into the assimilation. Exactly. Yeah. So the assimilation yeah. part of it, I think, is big. And that, that to me is the final piece, right? The way you fight anti-Semitism is you lead a strong, vibrant Jewish identity, right? Filled with your own Jewish life and Jewish ideas and and, and go back to that era where anti-Semitism was strange and, and didn't affect you because you saw it as an adolescent, uh, even if they were an adult, right? But an adolescent mind lashing out against something that they perceived to be a threat to them, but really wasn't a threat. And and, and that, to me, secular or, or observant, liberal, religious, all of this, right? There are ways to lead a vibrant Jewish life and be vibrantly Jewish without having anti-Semitism fighting as the be-all and end-all. And that that's what the product of all of this fear of anti-Semitism has led us to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think I'll do a yes and maybe, or I don't know if it's a disagreement or a yes and. We'll see. But I think yes to the vibrant Jewish life. However, I think it has to be said that, you know, at all in all periods of Jewish history, some of the victims of anti-Semitism have been people who do not identify as Jewish. And I don't mean that they're like in denial. I mean, people who have, uh, you know, their grandfather, great, great grandfather had a Jewish last name. So they sure. have a Jewish But that has nothing name, to do with this, right? No, but what I was yeah. going to say, though, is that I think that the fight against anti-Semitism, insofar as that's a useful framework, has to be both defending Jews as such, like defending Jews' right to exist in society as Jews, but also there is going to be this kind of generic human rights angle where it's like, do not be violent. And it sounds kind of trite, but the fact is that like there is a certain, you know, Hitler did also kill people who did not consider themselves and, and didn't even understand themselves to be Jewish. It wasn't that they had personally assimilated. So I think... I don't think we're disagreeing. Yeah. I, I'm not saying that we have to absolutely stop the fight against anti-Semitism, right? I, that, that's, oh, no, if that's I know, where I, I went. That, right. No, I think, I think I might be rambling. But I guess what I'm thinking is just that there's... Um, what's so tricky about this focus is precisely... Maybe this is actually where we agree, is that what's tricky about the focus so much on anti-Semitism and fighting anti-Semitism is that it kind of mirrors what anti-Semites are doing and loops in people who don't have anything to do with being Jewish, really, and don't want to. And there's no reason they would because it's just their last name and they never grew up Jewish or anything. And I think actual Jewish organizations, Jewish media and all of that, yeah, might be better served by thinking about just like in a positive sense, like what is it to be Jewish? What's going on? culture music food sneakers you know all of it yes. and um it doesn't oh just have to be like this kind of slogan thing and it often it does seem to amount to slogans a lot of the fight against anti-semitism seems to amount to saying let's fight anti-semitism and like that's literally it and that's a problem yeah and you don't fight anti-semitism with bagel sneakers you fight it with um, with showing that we have positive contributions to society and not just, mm -hmm. you know, we're not just money grubbing, uh, media controlling lawyers, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
No, we know where to get good um, consignment clothes. Yeah, also. <laughs> these, these these sneakers I'm about to show you are uh, for sale right now on Facebook Marketplace. So they are the uh, epitome of thrift storedness. Uh, somebody put them up for sale uh, yesterday. I'm tempted uh, to at least contact the person uh, because it's hysterical and they're for sale for a thousand dollars. Can you describe to us uh, what these sneakers uh, look like here? They look like somebody took a very ordinary pair of Nike, red Nike sneakers and took a bagel, cut that bagel in half, cut the bagel half in half, and uh, looks like an everything bagel, and glued one piece to each sneaker. Yes, and selling it for $1,000 on Facebook Marketplace. I thought that, that this is... was brilliant incredible and i would say it looks to me like a montreal bagel does that probably it is a montrealer that is selling it so so okay because i was going to say that's not a new york bagel that's a montreal bagel yeah Yeah. and that's anti-semitism right there right i i absolutely (laughs) right unless paired with dreidel socks then oh those sneakers have dreidel socks and it redeems them the the thousand dollar then then it's just then then you need to study it further okay (laughs) i think we've uh we've uh anti-Semitism to this, uh, this discussion to death. Um, mm-hmm. No pun. In, no, I'm kidding. Um, I think this conversation, I think we, we've reached the conclusion <laughs> of where we are going with this. Um, I really do wish, and that's why we try not to spend every episode talking about anti-Semitism, but, but this was just a, a good meta palate cleanser to sort of get it all out of the way. Palate cleanser. No, no. Next, the opposite. Join us next time for a discussion of the fight against anti-Semitism and how you can help the yes, fight by absolutely. putting up a big billboard. A pink billboard. Um, Only if it's pink. Yes. Yeah. Um, anyways, so, uh, yeah, we would love to know what you think. Uh, do you think that there's not enough discussion about anti-Semitism in, in public today? Do you think that Jews, uh, talk about other stuff too, and we're just not aware of it? Um, send us your thoughts, send it to bonjour at the cjn.ca. We really would love to hear, uh, your ideas on, uh, what we used to talk about before we talked about anti-Semitism and, uh, what else we can and should talk about. And now it's time on our show for our Nachas of the Week. Phoebe, what is your Nachas? My Nachas is that, and it's going to be Toronto-specific, so apologies to the people who are not in Toronto, but get yourselves to Toronto for the Gardner Museum every Sunday has something where you can bring, from I think 11 to 3, where you can bring your children and do clay modeling with them. And this is a lot of fun. It's a pottery museum, so I or like ceramics. So I'd always been kind of reluctant to bring my now four-year-old to a museum that specializes in extremely delicate pottery, you know, priceless, delicate pottery. But there's a special room you go to when you build stuff out of clay, and then you visit the museum while your clay dries. And we went and did this, and this was a lot of fun. And um, I don't remember... I think it's free for like pretty young children. I don't remember to what age. and But you also get a discount with your Presto card. And um, it was a tremendous bargain. I'm going to keep with the theme. But it was also just so much fun building stuff with clay because we'd otherwise only ever done like Play-Doh and stuff. And it was fun to use sort of real clay. Um, I, I yeah. need to know, though, do you have a little dreidel now? <laughs> I made it out. If you think I could get that song out of my head, they taught it at my daughter's public school in Toronto. So she's Mm -hmm. been singing it constantly. Um, (laughs) Oh, dear. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You did not make a dreidel out of clay, I guess. I I did not. We it was kind of a 
my daughter did i think maybe a dragon it was was sort of a rainbow to dragon we yeah okay work in progress except that it dried yeah Awesome. Um, I have I have a very short um, but very very awesome nachas. I think we are reaching peak nachas right here for Bonjour Chai specifically. Um, our former co-host and still beloved friend of Bonjour Chai, Alana Zakon, got engaged this past week to Ari Pasternak to her longtime uh, boyfriend, now fiance. I really really hope he got his Atelier Lou discount um, when he bought a <laughs> ring. Uh, because if not, that would be um, seriously, oh. uh, you know, what a waste. Um, but yes, everybody, please go find her on any social media or find her on the street and wish them, wish them both a mazel tov. Uh, awesome couple. I can't wait to get more good news from them. Um, so yes, Alana Zakon, now a fiancé, um, to, to give another a Seinfeld reference. But yes, a wonderful <laughs> I won't go down mazel the, the Seinfeld fiancé thing. I will simply say congratulations, Alana. That is fantastic. Yes, mazel tov. Phoebe, great show again. Um, great to have you back and uh, can't wait to do this again next week. Oh, this was so much fun. Thank you so much, Avi. I, awesome. I, I had a lot of fun talking about anti-Semitism. Sounds terrible to say, but yes, we, we had a good time. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending January 21st, Shabbat Parashat Va'era. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It is actually one of the best ways we get new listeners. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. And I'm Phoebe Maltz-Bovey.